This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. The wheat fields are growing tall and the heads are quickly shooting up the boots. So now is the yearly question, to fungicide or not to fungicide? The reason why this is a yearly question in wheat fields is because the answer is never straightforward. A lot of factors have to be considered. First off, we need to consider the stage of the wheat and the timing of application. Nearly 90% of yield comes from the last two leaves, and mostly the last leaf, known as the flag leaf. Fungicides are not systemic. They only protect the leaf area in which they were sprayed on. So, research has shown that spraying fungicide before the flag leaf emergence will have little yield response. Also, the fungicide will only protect the weed head if directly sprayed on. Most fungicides will protect the contacted leaf or head for only two to three weeks. However, by the time the flag leaf and head emerges, and it takes a couple of weeks for the fungal infection to take hold, that two to three weeks of fungified protection is all that is needed. The actual question of whether to spray fungicide comes down to if the yield increase will be worth the cost. The average yield response to fungicides on susceptible or moderately susceptible in the studied fungus was 10%. A resistant variety to a certain fungus only has a 12% chance of yield response to a fungicide application. If a yield variety has a good set of resistances to multiple diseases, most years is not going to make a difference in yield to apply fungicide. This, however, depends on how much pressure from fungal diseases is in the region and within the field. Regional pressure relates to the rust diseases and a high level of regional pressure indicated by outbreaks locally and worsening rust conditions in Oklahoma can make fungicide applications more relevant. Upcoming weather forecast of cool and wet conditions favorable to rust and most fungal diseases, that can be a factor as well. Within the field, fungus in the lower canopy on susceptible varieties means the chances are above average for a fungicide response. The tire crush from a sprayer is a consideration as well. A tire crush of 3 feet on a 60-foot boom is a 5% loss. This is a moot point if the late top dress has already crushed the tire tracks because the sprayer can run in the same tracks but it is harder to justify a modest yield increase from a fungicide application when 5% is lost from the tires. The last point to fungicide decision is putting it all together. It comes down to how the wheat market is doing, how the current yield potential for the field is looking, and will the increase in profit from spraying be worth the cost of fungicide, the sprayer cost, and the possible tire crush. Farmers are also considering adding pesticides into their applications as well. At this point, it rarely pays to treat for aphids. It takes a whole lot of aphids, around 50 per tiller, to have much of an effect on yield. Although aphids carry barley yellow dwarf, an infection of the virus at this point won't have enough time to make any yield difference. But the real issue with preventative spraying to control aphids is that it will kill the beneficials and only most of the aphids. The aphids then can come back with their incredible reproduction rates. Really, farmers need to be watching out for the armyworms that can strip entire flag leaves in the matter of days. If there are any questions about fungicide applications in wheat, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent with the Wildcat Extension District. Calves with respiratory problems Cows that naturally terminate calves early, deformed calves, and scours are just a few of the signs that a cow-calf producer may have bovine viral diarrhea circulating in their herd. Though diarrhea is part of the name, BVD presents itself in many ways. 
This unique virus impacts animals of all ages through multiple body systems. The major source of the virus comes from persistently infected cattle in or around the herd. Sometimes these persistently infected calves, often referred to as PIs, will appear healthy and may or may not thrive. These calves were actually infected during gestation. If the infected fetus survives to birth, they will continually shed the virus and expose other animals. Fetal exposure happens when the pregnant cow has been in contact with the persistently infected calf. The cow may recover from the virus, but the fetus will not. Consider this scenario, infect and persist, quite a frustrating cycle. The other way that BVD propagates is like a hit and run, common with stalkers and feeder cattle. An infected animal will either recover or perish within about a week. If the infected animal passes the BVD virus along to another animal before recovery or death, the virus survives. However, if the infected calf is restricted from passing the virus during recovery, the virus dies out. Testing for BVD is fairly simple. An ear notch sample taken at branding or as early in the calf's life as possible is ideal. Using a pig ear notcher, collect about a dime-sized sample of the outer ear. This sample can be placed in a blood serum tube with the calf's ID and frozen until arriving at a lab. There are lots of places to get these samples tested. Call your local vet or extension office for more details on lab locations. If you suspect bovine viral diarrhea in your herd, it's important to work with a veterinarian. All calves in the herd will be tested to start the process of protecting future generations. When you do come across a persistently infected calf, it should be ethically disposed of. Placing these cattle back in the livestock marketing system where they may infect other cattle is irresponsible. Infected cattle should either be euthanized or fed in isolated pens and sent directly to slaughter. To protect your herd from BVD, quarantine all replacement animals for at least 21 days to safeguard against temporary infection. During quarantine, test for PI status. Isolate all new pregnant cows until calving and test their calves upon birth. It's important to test these calves before the dams are rebred to eliminate the possibility of producing more PI cattle. Vaccination can slow or prevent the hit-and-run version of the BVD virus that produces temporary disease. Vaccinating cows to prevent the infection of calves and thus the birth of new PI cattle is helpful but not 100% effective. Establish a tailored biosecurity and vaccination program with advice from your veterinarian. For more information, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Strons, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is a Damon Strauss, one of the agriculture and natural resource agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension report. Raccoons are common throughout Kansas. The black face mask and ring tail are their distinguishing characteristics. Adult raccoons in Kansas can weigh 8 to 49 pounds and measure 26 to 38 inches long. Breeding season for raccoons is in February and with a gestation period of 63 days, young are born in April and May. There is usually one litter per year of 4 to 7 young. At birth, the young furry animals weigh about 2 and a quarter ounces. They are born blind but their eyes open within 30 days. 
Young raccoons stay in the den until they are 8 to 10 weeks old. They are weaned in August. Raccoons prefer wooded areas near streams, rivers, or other water sources to build their dens. Raccoons are omnivores and eat a variety of foods. Among them, small animals such as crawfish, clams, fish, frogs, snails, small mammals, and insects, and vegetables and fruit, including cherries, apples, nuts, and grains. Like many other animals, raccoons are opportunists eating pet food, garbage, or other foods they find in urban and suburban areas. Most daily movements of raccoons are within a relatively small area called a home range. According to researchers in Iowa, male raccoons normally have a home range no larger than two square miles, while female home ranges do not exceed 1.4 square miles and juvenile raccoons have an even smaller home range of about 0.6 square miles. Depending upon the availability of resources such as food, rest, and denning sites, home ranges of raccoons in other states may vary considerably. In general, ranges are smaller where resources are plentiful. To manage problem raccoons, two options are frightening devices and food and cover reduction. Frightening devices are effective because raccoons are nocturnal using various frightening devices such as lights, noisemakers, or playing a radio during the night can reduce damage. However, these methods are not effective for long because raccoons adapt to them. Food and cover reduction is a long-term solution to manage your home so you don't invite raccoon problems to begin with. You can do this by not leaving pet food outside at night and placing garbage in sealed metal containers. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Hort Report. The final in a series on tree establishment, this week we will talk about what you can do to help your tree along after it's been put in the ground. The two primary things homeowners try to do to help the tree along are mulching and staking. While both will help the tree if done properly, improper mulching or staking has the potential to shorten the lifespan of the tree considerably. If there's one thing that you can do for a newly planted tree, mulch the hole with 2 inches of mulch up to 1 inch away from the base of the tree. Mulch has many proven benefits, including reducing plant competition, reducing damage from lawnmowers and other landscaping tools, regulating soil temperature, and increasing moisture retention. All of these benefits will help the tree establish more quickly, prevent injury where disease and decay can enter, and lower resource stress. Leaving a small ring around the base of the tree without mulch is to prevent something we talked about last week, stem girdling roots. Some trees have girdling roots straight out of the container, but most girdling roots form as a result of a lack of access to oxygen. Mulch volcanoes, rings around the base of the trees that get thicker as they get closer to the base of the tree, are more common in landscaping than they should be. The thicker the mulch is piled up on the roots around the base of the tree, the more likely it is that the roots will journey to the soil surface in order to get the oxygen they need for respiration, particularly if the soil contains a lot of clay. 
Not only do these surface roots cause problems for mowing yards, but these roots can also wrap around the base of the tree. If these are not removed early, the tree is at risk of self-strangulation. This is one of the reasons you do not want to pack the backfill soil in your tree planting too tight, or bury the root flare of the tree when planting. The tighter the soil is packed, the less oxygen will be available for the roots. Some trees will naturally push their roots to the surface because of their normal growing environment. The prime example of this is the bald cypress, which is naturally found on swamps. These trees will commonly push roots to the surface and form knees, which is a sign of health for this particular species and not of distress. Staking is the other post-planting method people commonly use. The idea behind staking is to keep the tree stable while the root system develops and to prevent the tree from leaning. Some people take it too far and tie the tree to the stakes in such a way that it cannot move at all. This leaves the trunk no room for expansion so the trunk ends up growing around the wire, making it impossible to remove. This leads to abrasion and strangulation. Wires tying the tree to the stake should always have coverings, such as garden hose, anywhere the wire touches the tree to prevent abrasive injury. The tree should also be able to move in the wires. Staking is a stopgap in emergency stability situations and not a straitjacket. As long as you leveled out the tree during planting and allow the tree room to breathe, the expanding root system should provide all of the stability a tree needs. Stakes and wires can be removed after the first year in the ground. For more information on today's topic, contact your local extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Hort Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.